again, it's good to have each of you here at Cornerstone Church this morning. Good to have those that are visiting. Good to have the youth group led by Drew and Shana. And um, from Roxbury, North Carolina, right? It is so good to have you guys here. It's good to have Pastor James and Brenda and their family from Charleston. Been a good friend of mine James, if you would raise your hand, he's been a very good friend of mine and helped me and helped me on the mission field by handling our funds for a long time when he was actually pastoring in Duluth, Minnesota. So I appreciate him. He's a good friend and has been a blessing to me over the years. And I appreciate his friendship and his commitment to the Lord. So we're in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And I know it's a lot to cover, for me especially, the one that sometimes covers two words, but we're going to try to get through it. And we'll be looking at that in a few moments. So let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for who you are. Lord, may we have upon our minds your perfections, your attributes, all that you are, your essence, God, that we might know you. There's so much wrong with the church today. The church in America in particular is a church that doesn't know who God is. They don't know you. They don't know your son. So God, today, may you reveal yourself to us through your word. May our hearts be opened. May the scales be taken away that we might see you, especially in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. That we might know him and the true God that sent his son. Lord, work in our hearts, God, by your grace. Conform us to the image of Christ. God, may your spirit illuminate our minds and our hearts. And may this service and this message now be to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. After the Reformation came the age of enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries, which in part taught that we do not need God to explain the universe or human existence. Amazingly, this captured the minds of many. But what came next seriously infected the church as they surrendered to the naturalistic ideas of the Enlightenment. Within the mainstream denomination, we saw the denials of the inerrancy and divine inspiration of Scripture, the denial of supernatural events, including the miracles of Christ, such things as the virgin birth, his atoning, substitutionary atonement, his death, and his bodily resurrection. The fundamental truths of Scripture were exchanged for a humanitarian religion, what 
we know of today as theological liberalism. This left the mainstream church with this primary question, what in the world are we to do now? For nearly 1,900 years, the church had faithfully preached the historical truths of Christianity, proclaiming Jesus as the saving Messiah, who, yes, performed miracles as the Son of God, was born of a virgin, died a substitutionary, efficacious death, who rose bodily on the third day. All of this revealed in scriptures breathed out by God himself. And these scriptures were inerrant in their autographs. But once you abandon these fundamental truths, what benefit does the church have? Some thought its purpose had become only a humanitarian purpose, having humanitarian principles, and that all religions were virtually the same. One man, Adolf von Harnack, suggested that the essence of Christianity could only be seen in the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Yet neither one of these ideas are biblical. Rather, they're in stark contrast in opposition to the scriptures. Some of the proponents of these ideas would use text, such as Acts chapter 17, verse 28, where the Apostle Paul quotes from the pagan poet who acknowledged that we are God's offspring. However, this only means that we're his creatures, not that he is our spiritual father. Rather, what we see in scripture is that we are born in sin. We're born separated from God's favor. We indeed are born into this world as children of the devil. John eight forty four. Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews, you are of, the fa- of your father, the devil. We see it also in John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, where John draws a stark contrast between the children of God and the children of the devil. And he says it is evidenced by their righteousness or lack thereof. In the parable of the weeds, the weeds sown among the good seed in Matthew 13. Jesus tells us that the weeds are the sons of the evil one. You see, there is no universal fatherhood of God. The the fatherhood of God is indeed glorious, yet it is particular. It only applies to one person by nature. And who is that? It applies to the monogenes, the only begotten, the only begotten Son of God. It means the unique, one of a kind, the Son of God, eternally begotten, eternally generated from the Father. Jesus is the only one who by nature and by essence is begotten of the Father. So if you are a child of God this morning, it is because you are not, it's not, I should say, it is not because you were born one. It is because you have been adopted by the Father. You have been son placed by an act of God's grace. It is because the Father chose you before the foundation of the world to save you and give you the life of God. It is because you have believed in the monogenes the only begotten of the Father, 
full of grace and truth, who loved us and gave himself for us as our substitute, both in his life and in his death. Understand, because there's no universal fatherhood of God, that means there's no universal brotherhood of man. That is also particular. I like how R.C. Sproul describes our relationship to others. He says what the Bible teaches is the universal neighborhood of man. All of us are neighbors. That's why we're called universally to love our neighbors as ourselves, end of quote. There is no universal fatherhood of God and no universal brotherhood of man. They both are particular, only applying to those who have been adopted by the Father into the family of God. So where are we going with this? Well, first consider, we do not derive our theology from the culture in which we live. It doesn't come from the ways or the thinking of the world. We do not interpret the scripture according to modern day theological interpretation. No. That's what many in the apostate churches are doing today. We must beware. Our culture can blind us to the clear teachings of scripture. And it often does. But we are not of this world we are citizens of another nation, even the commonwealth of Israel, Ephesians 2, the household of God. We are citizens of heaven, and our thinking must come from the spiritual, from the word of God, which is the foundation of truth and the foundation of the church. You see, the Lord has spoken. The king has given his commandments. He has written them in his book. This is the source of truth. So what we see in our text today is in stark contrast to the idea of the universal fatherhood of God. And if we're going to understand what the Spirit of God intended, the author intended through Paul, we must understand not according to culture, but according to its historical context. And that's precisely what Paul is doing as he relates his teaching to the history of God's progressive revelation. So we come this morning to Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And the Apostle Paul, <coughs> excuse me, I had a drink and I lost it somewhere along the way. <clears throat> Thank you, honey. Best wife I ever had. <laughs> it's the only wife I've ever had. Yeah. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. So the Apostle Paul writes, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child... He does not differ at all from a slave, although he is an owner of everything. But he is under guardians and stewards until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were enslaved under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law 
that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It is unfortunate that the chapter break occurs where it does. You see, in the original writings, there were no chapters or verses. Only a coherent unity that was plain to see. But sometimes these divisions muddy the waters, as we find here. Chapter 4 continues the thoughts of chapter 3, specifically the last two verses. And we see a... We, we see no logical division here. We see a fluidity from chapter 3 into chapter 4. So last week we concluded with those two verses where the Apostle Paul writes, chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So Paul identifies the heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. He's already done this earlier in chapter 3. These heirs are those who belong to Christ. Nationality doesn't matter. Social or economic status doesn't matter. Gender doesn't matter. The seed are those who belong to Christ because Christ is the seed of Abraham. If you are in Christ, if you're identified with, with him by the Spirit of God through faith, you are the seed of Abraham. So the question for us this morning immediately becomes, do we belong to Christ? Have we received the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ? If so, you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. You see, there is no universal fatherhood of man, only a specific, only a particular fatherhood for those who are in the Son, those with the faith of Abraham, chapter 3, verse 7. Now notice the flow into chapter 4. Beginning again with verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul writes, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and stewards until the date set by the father. So Paul continues his thought from chapter 3, and he's basically saying, as long as you're a child, as long as you're a minor, you're not of age, you're no different than a slave who has no inheritance. So he's making this analogy. Until the son became of age, he was like the slave, although he was the owner of everything. You see, the son, even as a minor, had a legal right, legal right to the inheritance. But he was not yet an heir in practice. You see, so he was like the slave until that date set by the father. He had no use of the inheritance. He was dependent upon the household, just like the slave. He writes in verse two, but he speaking of the child is under guardians and stewards until the date set by the father. So until that prescribed date chosen by the father of the household, <clears throat> 
the son was under guardians and stewards. <clears throat> Excuse me. The guardians managed the affairs of the household, the children in particular, and the stewards. It's a combination word, oikos and nomos. It means Oikos means house. Noemos means to distribute or to deal out. So the steward managed the domestic affairs of the family, especially the financial distribution of resources. So the son is just like the slave. He is dependent upon the guardians and the stewards of the household. And that is true until the date set by the father. The son is under the guardians and the stewards. He was dependent upon them for his provision, just like the slave. So Paul is equating the Jews who lived under the Mosaic covenant. And even to some degree, as we saw last week, and we gave the rationale for this last week, even Gentiles who had the law written upon their consciences, He's acquainting these people, all of us really in some sense, with the condition of sons who had not yet received the inheritance, who waited for their inheritance to become tangible as the father promised. You see, it was a waiting game, looking ahead to the promise, looking ahead to the inheritance that would become tangible for the son, but not for the slave. Verse 3, he continues, So also we, while we were children, underaged, were enslaved under the elemental things of the world. So Paul builds on his analogy here by acquainting Jews specifically living under the law as children, as enslaved under the elemental things of the world. This is the condition of the child dependent upon the steward for his worldly needs. But it's also a Jewish phrase, this elemental things of the world. It's a Jewish phrase that basically meant to them the rudiments or principles of their Jewish religion. You see, the law was not meant as a means of salvation. It was only the elements, or as Barnes writes, the alphabet of it. It pointed sinners to the coming Savior, and we saw that last week as well. It also held the Jews in custody as they were shut up. They were imprisoned by the law, a law that they could not keep. They were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And that's precisely what the Apostle Paul wrote back in verse 23 of chapter, chapter 3. He writes this, but before faith came, we were held in custody. It's imprisonment. We were held in custody under the law, being shut up for the coming faith to be revealed. Be revealed excuse me. So before Christ came, the Jews specifically were under the Mosaic covenant. But all men practically were, were enslaved to the law written upon their hearts, their consciences. They were held in custody. They were imprisoned by the law. Remember last week, the Padagogos in verse 24 and 25? translated in the LSBs, translated guardian. Sometimes it's translated in some translations as tutor. But really, you have both ideas here. 
The law was like a guardian who walked the aisles of the old time classroom, wrapping students on the knuckles every time they misbehaved. The law punished them over and over and over again. It was a law they could not keep. They could not fulfill it. Therefore, it was also like a tutor teaching them that they needed something better than the law because they could not fulfill it. It pointed them. It actually drove them to the Messiah who would come, who would mediate the new covenant and write the laws upon their hearts. So now we come to verse 4. In verse 4, we have one of those what I call divine conjunctions. But, see this condition under the law, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Paul speaks here of the Pleroma, Pleroma, I can't get it out this morning. The fullness of time, the fullness of chronos. To understand Pleroma, consider a glass of water. Pleroma does not mean it's mostly full, three quarters full, or even full up to the lid. It means you place the glass of water under the faucet and the water is now running over the side. There's no time left, not even one second. It means an eternity past before the foundation of the world. God decreed at this precise second in time that God would send forth his son. His son would come upon the scene. In the fullness of time, God so loved the world that he gave his monogenes, his only begotten son, to accomplish for sinners what the law could never do, weak as it was through the flesh to set sinners free from the law of sin that brings death. It means in the province of God, the glass of time overflowed with God's grace. The very second decreed by God, the saving Mashiach was born of a virgin girl, came into this world to rescue a people for his namesake. He came to be their substitute in his life and in his death. Notice God's son was born of a virgin, and there's so much here. He was the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. He would be virgin born, and he was. He was the God-man, truly God and truly man. He was the one promised who would crush the head of the serpent and save his people from their sins. Again, Genesis 3.15, notice he was also born under the law for Christ to redeem his people from their sins. He had to fulfill the law. The saving Messiah had to fulfill the law in our place, in our stead, so that his perfect righteousness could be and would be imputed to us. Without his perfect life, there would be no salvation. But because he fulfilled the law, if you're in Christ, his righteousness has been placed upon you. It has been imputed to you so that when God looks at you, he sees you clothed with the righteousness of his son. He sees you as positionally and perfectly righteous. Why was it necessary for Christ to be born under the law? 
verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. We've seen this word many times before, redeemed. It's the Greek word ex agorazo. What a word. It means to buy out of, to redeem from, as in to purchase out of slavery. You see, before the fullness of time, before the unveiling of the saving Messiah, we were all slaves to the law of God, the Jews specifically to the Mosaic Covenant. But even we Gentiles to the law written on our hearts, and we could not even keep that. You see, the law enslaved us. The law had a death penalty. The law, like a guardian, a school guardian, wrapped us on the knuckles, and we could not free ourselves from its punishment. We had no way of escape. We were imprisoned. But that law also drove us to the one who has now come, the Messiah that God promised, the Savior of the world, who has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. We've already seen this, all this in context. You see, Jesus, the Messiah, took our sins upon himself. The sins of every person who would ever believe were placed upon him, and the Father treated him as if he had committed our sins. You see, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. The father abandoned his son upon the cross. He was forsaken on the cross because he bore the eternal punishment that we earned. He bore our sins specifically, and he died for the elect. Therefore, he has redeemed us. He has bought us out of the slave market of sin. He became a curse for us so that he set us free from the law that brings death. That law that we could not escape, he brought us out of death, out of death, death penalty, really. And he has given us eternal life. It is a free gift of God through faith in his son. We cannot earn it. We do not deserve it. We know who we are. If we know the word of God and we know what God has revealed, we are sinners before God. But by his grace, we are saved. According to chapter 3, verse 29. This only applies to those who belong to Christ. And it's important that we understand this this morning. There is no fatherhood, no universal fatherhood of God or universal brotherhood of man. There is a particular fatherhood of God. It is only those who belong to Christ. Only those who were chosen before the foundation of the world, only those that Jesus gave himself as our substitute, those who have believed on his name, who through faith are now sons of the living God. Verse 6 and 7, the last two verses. And because you are sons, speaking to those in Christ, speaking to the Galatian believers, Although they are being influenced by the Judaizers, the law keepers, these men, women, boys, and girls had come to faith in Christ, and they were sons. Because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Verse 6 gives us the confirmation of sonship. 
And that confirmation is the indwelling spirit. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. The Apostle Paul wrote to those in Rome, if any man or anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The evidence of the indwelling spirit is not emotions. It is not cleaning ourselves up and looking good on the outside. It is not some moral standard that we've set up or even keeping the law. But the evidence of the spirit is a changed heart. A heart with a new want to, a desire to please God and to live for his glory, a heart with the life of God. It is by the spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is a Syriac word which speaks of intimate affection. Father is a Greek word translated from a Greek word. That's much like our English word for father. But together they speak of the state in which the believer exists, no longer under the law of sin that brings death, no longer children of the evil one, no longer enemies of God, but sons of God by adoption, sons by God's grace. So together they speak of a reconciling grace and an intimate relationship. Through Christ we have been redeemed from the law of sin and death. We have been bought out of sin and death and brought into pre the presence of a loving father. We have been brought back. What was just think of this. What was lost in the Garden of Eden, that relationship walking in the cool of the evening is restored in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, so together they speak. These words speak of a reconciling grace and an intimate relationship. We've been brought into the presence of God, brought into the presence of God, no longer wearing the filthy rags of self-righteousness, no longer stained by sin, but now wearing the white robes of Christ's righteousness. You see, we have been accepted in the beloved. We have been accepted in the beloved, not because of us, but because of our substitute who lived a holy life and who bore our sins on Calvary's cross. We have been accepted in the beloved. We are part of God's family with all its rights and privileges. You see, he is our God and we are his people. And if you're a son of God by grace through faith, if you have been adopted into God's family, if you belong to him, then you're heirs together with Christ. You see, God's family has his privileges. They're not temporary privileges. They're not affected by rust or decay. They're eternal spiritual privileges. Even the blessings that were promised to Abraham. Back in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul writes, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and here's the good news given to Abraham, all the nations will be blessed in you. And he continues, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. This was fulfilled in the fullness of Tom. This is fulfilled in Christ, the monogonese, the only begotten of the Father, 
and all the spiritual blessings that belong to Christ are ours together with him. In Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. To know the Father through his, through his Son, to know the Father through His Son is to know the one from whom all blessings flow. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, James 1, 17. You see, God is the source of all blessing. Goodness only comes from him because there is no goodness apart from God. All the blessings of God are found in the monogenes, the only begotten son of God. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. It's so clear, no man comes to the Father except through him. In conclusion, I want to remind you of the broader context the Galatian believers were being influenced by the Judaizers who were distorting the gospel of God's grace. They said, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, the Mashiach, and you must believe in him, but you must also be circumcised. You see, what Christ had done was not enough to them. You must also be circumcised and then adhere to the commandments in order to be saved. To the Judaizers, obedience to God was the root of salvation. It was faith plus works. I said that wrong. To the Judaizers, obedience to God, yeah, I said that right, was the root of salvation rather than the fruit of salvation. Of course there's obedience in the life of a believer. But it is, we're not saved because or based upon our obedience. We're saved because of Christ and what he did. His life and his death was efficacious for our sins. So in Galatians 1.8, Paul warns the Galatians about these who preach any other gospel. And he says this, but even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel that we have proclaimed to you, speaking as an apostle, let him be anathema, let him be accursed, condemned eternally. You see, God is very protective of his gospel. The truth must go forth. So what was the gospel proclaimed by the apostles? It was the gospel of God's grace in Christ received through faith alone. It is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Ladies and gentlemen, the law does not save. The law does not make you righteous. You can't keep it anyway. Rule keeping does not make you holy. The law condemns us. It shuts or it shows us, well, it shuts the mouths of the self-righteous. It shows us that we're exceedingly sinful. It imprisons us to its penalty. It wraps us on the knuckles. It punishes us. It brings forth death. But at the same time, it points us ahead to Christ. It points us to the saving Messiah as our substitute, as our Savior who fulfilled the law in our place and paid the death penalty for our sins. And this is the great exchange, isn't it? The sins of all who would believe were imputed to him, and he suffered as if he was the guilty one. 
and his righteousness, his righteous life, fulfilling the law, is imputed to all who believe, so that when God sees his child, he sees him as holy. He sees him as a saint wearing the righteousness of his son. You see, there is no universal fatherhood of God. There's only a particular fatherhood, and it's by the grace of God to those who believe in his son. But understand, faith is not just believing facts about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just believing that Jesus lived a sinless life and died upon a cross 2,000 years ago. It is trust. It is confidence that rests in Christ and his saving work. It rests in him as Lord and Savior. Has God brought you to repentance and faith in Christ? That's the question for all of us this morning. Have you been born from above, born again, or literally born from above? Are you a new creation in Christ Jesus? If not, the word of God is clear for all have sinned. It's present tense, all continually sin and have fallen short of God's glorious standard, fallen short of his glory. And the command is to repent and believe the gospel. Repent, change your mind. It's a change of mind that results in a turning away from sin and looking to Christ. We're turning away from the world. We're turning away from our sins that we love, and we're looking to Christ to save us from our sins. That's faith. See, this monogenes, this only begotten Son of God, has done everything necessary to save those who believe. If you do not believe, you will never be able to say, well, God, I must not have been one of the elect, because we don't see that in Scripture. We see human responsibility the command is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Look to him and you will be saved. That's the promise of God. Look to him and you will be saved. So I challenge you this morning, if you've never believed upon him, if you've never trusted in him as your Lord and Savior, look to him. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for such a great salvation that you have provided in your Son. God, I thank you for your love for us. Lord, we confess to you we have sinned against you. We have nothing to offer you but our sin. But by your grace, God, you have provided salvation in your son, your only begotten son. Thank you that he lived a sinless life. Thank you that he bore our sins. Thank you that he said it is finished. Everything necessary was accomplished. Not only do we not need to add to what Christ did, we could never add to his perfect atonement. May we rest in him. 
May we trust in him with all of our hearts. And when we leave this place in a little while, may we live for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.